You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared US. Shall we play a game? Sorry for the 80s flashback there, but for word games, puzzles, and trivia of all sorts right now, check out Ask Me Another. Can you do math at the movies? Do you know what it means to jump the shark? Can you name commercial jingles sung in Italian? Find out by listening to Ask Me Another on iTunes under podcasts. Hello again from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We use the word dream sometimes to mean almost completely opposite things. We use dream to describe an aspiration for something that can be if we try hard enough. Dream a little dream. I have a dream. But we also use it in the opposite way to describe something that just is so impossible to get that it's ridiculous to try. You know, dream on, buddy, in your dreams. So what about people who are partway down the ladder of success in America and their American dream. Given that 40% of America's wealth, up to 40%, and up to 20% of its income is in the hands of the legendary 1%, does the dreamer on the ladder still have a chance to climb, or should he or she simply dream on? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will argue for and against this motion. Income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then the live audience here in New York will vote to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters, please. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Elise Gould. And Elise, uh, you're a senior economist and director of health policy research at the Economic Policy Institute. And one of the topics you, just, uh, you study there is wages. You have a calculator on your website, I'm told about. I haven't been to it yet. But it shows what your wages would be today if they had actually kept up with productivity. So that $40,000 today really should be something closer to $60,000. That's about right. So when, when that was posted on the website, did everybody at the Institute ask for a raise? Well, not immediately, John, but we economists really know how to bring the facts to the table when we start bargaining over wages. And you'll be bringing some facts tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Elise Gould. Elise, tell us who your partner is. My partner is the charming and resourceful Nick Hanauer. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Hanauer, please welcome him. Nick, you are also arguing for the motion, Income Inequality Impairs the American Dream of Upward Mobility. You are a, let's just say it, you are clearly a one percenter. You're a venture capitalist. Way back in the 90s, you made an investment in a little company called Amazon.com. It worked out. You recently wrote a memo to, as you put it, your fellow zillionaires, where you warn them that these high and historically high inequality is not only self-defeating, that it's transforming us into a feudal society. How did your fellow zillionaires respond to that? <laughs> well, 
I, I live in Seattle, Washington, and uh, I, I reckon you have to go all the way to Texas to find a serious and intelligent, wealthy person who doesn't agree that rising inequality is something that we need to <laughs> that we need to we need to address. Yeah, three cheers for Texas. Thank you, Nick Hanauer. That's our team arguing for the motion, ladies and gentlemen. And we have two debaters arguing against the motion, which once again is income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. Please welcome Ed Conard. Ed, you are a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, former partner at Bain Capital. That makes you also a one percenter. Author of this book, Unintended Consequences, Why Everything You've Been Told About the Economy is Wrong, in which you actually explain how society benefits from, from the wealthy. Ahead of publication on this, you were profiled in the New York Times. The article predicted that this could be the most hated book of the year. <laughs> Was it, Ed Kennard? <laughs> Only in my wildest dreams do I have that much impact on the national debate. <laughs> well, <laughs> see what happens after tonight's debate. Ladies and gentlemen, Ed Conard. And Ed, your partner is? Scott Winship, a renowned poverty scholar, formerly on the left, now on the right. He's uh, examined the data for quite some time and he's gradually come to the other side of, uh, of the divide. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Winship. <laughs> Scott, uh, As your partner just said, you're also arguing against the motion that income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. And as he pointed out, you're at the Manhattan Institute, a a, relatively conservative uh, think tank, but you were once part of ACORN, the liberal community organizing group. So being at the Manhattan Institute now with that background, how how do you describe yourself? Uh, I suppose I'm a liberal-tarian. I don't know. My mom describes me as handsome. Well, Scott Winship, ladies and gentlemen, and our team arguing against the motion. Let's get on to round one. Our motion is this. Income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. And here to speak first for the motion, Elise Gould. She is senior economist and director of health policy at the Economic Policy Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Elise Gould. Let's start with the first part of the proposition. Research from a multitude of government and academic sources have indisputably found that income inequality has increased over the last generation. That is an established fact. We know from research that rising income inequality has not helped grow the size of the economy and has likely even harmed growth. This makes the rise in inequality a zero-sum game at best. Since inequality means that the larger shares are flowing to the top, the middle and bottom continue to get squeezed. Those consequences aside, the one cost we're discussing today is reduced access to the American dream. The most common concept economists use to measure upward mobility is intergenerational mobility. This is the extent to which your parents' economic position determines your position in adulthood. If your position on the earnings, income, or wealth scale is largely a function of your birth, then even the most talented coming from the lower rungs of society will have a hard time achieving success. Conversely, little correlation between parents and children means that one's economic fate can be directly determined through intelligence and hard work. The fact that one's economic position in childhood determines one's position in adulthood more so in the yes than in many advanced countries. We have less mobility here than in Denmark, Norway, Finland, Sweden. We have less mobility than Australia, Japan, New Zealand, Germany, Spain, France. Let me talk for a moment about our peer to the north, Canada. Canada actually looks a lot like us, both in economic regime and in its diversity. But family background is twice as important in determining children's success in the US than in Canada. Furthermore, among our peers, we are the most unequal society, and we have seen the greatest growth in inequality. Janet Yellen recently reiterated the fact that lower economic mobility is found in countries with higher income inequality. Opportunity for many often looks like education. Over time, high-income parents are making increasingly larger and larger investments in their children. And that's a good thing. But lower-income families simply cannot afford to make those same investments. And those investments pay off. 
may come as no surprise the more affluent students score better on standardized tests. A recent study actually renamed the Scholastic Aptitude Test the Student Affluent Test, and it's a self-reinforcing cycle. What is even more troubling for society that defends the reality of the American dream is that low-scoring, high-income students are more likely to graduate from college than high-scoring, low-income students. That is, by definition, not about ability. It is about income. Everyone can't be in the top 1%, and we can all name stories of children who did succeed against all odds. But it's against the all odds part that we're here to talk about today. Has living in an increasingly unequal society made it harder to climb the rungs of the ladder? Unambiguously, the answer is yes. Thank you, Elise Gould. And that is our motion. Income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. And here to speak against the motion, Scott Winship. He is the Walter B. Riston Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Scott Winship. Uh, first, I agree that there is a lot of income inequality in the United States. Uh, there's, frankly, there's a lot of income inequality on this stage. Um, um, in my mind, if, if income inequality were impairing the American dream of upward mobility, you ought to see two things jump out at you in the, in the very big literature that we've got on this question. Um, the first thing you would expect to see is that over the period where uh, inequality was growing in the United States, that you would see falling uh, upward mobility. Uh, now, the, the consensus from a dozen studies is easily summarized by the conclusion from the most recent paper uh, that, that came to this conclusion. Uh, and I'll just quote, it found that mobility has remained remarkably stable over the second half of the 20th century in the United States. That finding is from Berkeley's Emmanuel Saez, uh, who along with Thomas Piketty, who's the most famous economist uh, of the year for sure, they're the two who developed the top 1% estimates that we all uh, have seen everywhere. So that's, that's his conclusion. The second conclusion you would expect to see is that places with a lot of inequality uh, would have lower mobility. Uh, and you heard Elise mention that the U.S. has less mobility than other countries. That is, was certainly the conventional wisdom, I would argue, uh, until this year. Uh, in a paper published this year, uh, a Canadian economist named Miles Korak, what he did in this newest paper is to team up with an American economist and a, and a Swedish economist. And the three of them looked at their own countries compared mobility across them, and they found, uh, quote, we find almost no differences in upward mobility between Canada, Sweden, and the United States. Okay, my opponents want you to believe that if the top 1% hadn't made as much in the past 35 years, that the bottom and the, and the middle would have made more. But research, again, finds that in rich countries, uh, those that experience bigger increases in inequality have experienced uh, bigger income gains at the bottom and in the middle. So uh, essentially, if you enlarge the pie enough, the economic pie enough, then uh, the poor and middle class actually can get more pie, even if their slice becomes skinnier. Uh, if you claim that uh, absent rising inequality, the middle class would have had uh, thousands of dollars more than they did, there are a couple of really big assumptions hidden uh, behind that. One is that if we had capped the incomes at the top, uh, that the economic pie would have become just as big as it actually did. Uh, the second assumption is that if, if we had capped those incomes, uh, essentially the proceeds would be equally distributed across the population. Now, in actuality, what would likely happen is we'd be shifting uh, incomes to uh, knowledge workers and professionals who are in the upper middle class uh, or in the rest of the top 10%. So as you listen to the arguments uh, from the other side, I hope you continue to ask yourself that if income inequality hurts opportunity, why is it so hard to find that link when you look across time and look over space? The answer is that the motion on the table that income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility is intuitive uh, but wrong, and that's why you should vote against it. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Stay with us. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. 
And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through this opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. Income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. I'd like to welcome to the lectern Nick Hanauer. He is a co-founder and partner at the venture capital firm Second Avenue Partners and author of the book The Gardens of Democracy. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Hanauer. Let me start tonight by sharing some IRS data. In 1980, the top 1% of Americans shared 8.46% of national income. By 2007, it had risen to 22.86%. During the same time, the bottom 50% of Americans' uh, share of national income fell from 17.68% to 12.19%. And then in 2008, remember 2007 before those were the good old days, things went really bad for the American middle class. The distance an American child needs to go to get from the bottom to the top in our society is staggering. CEOs used to make 30 times the median wage, now earn 300 to 500 times. But there are two fundamentally different arguments inequality deniers make. The first is that it doesn't exist. The second is that it exists, but it's actually really, really good for the economy and the middle class. The idea, of course, is that when the rich get richer, that's good for the economy and for the middle class and for mobility. And this, of course, is the trickle-down economics lie. Capitalism needs inequality to grow, just like plants need water to grow, but in precisely the same way that too much water kills plants by drowning them, too much inequality kills capitalism by drowning the middle class. Ed and other inequality apologists present us with a false choice. Extreme and rising inequality is necessary to create adequate incentives for innovation and risk-taking, and that without these extreme incentives, it will all disappear. He will tell you that anything we do to blunt inequality, like raising the taxes on the rich, or improving labor standards for the poor to increase wages will kill the economy and mobility. This is utter nonsense. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Sam Walton, they all started their companies when taxes were twice as high as they are today, theoretically with half the incentive. Did they make some sort of cosmic mistake? Clearly, people are responding to incentives, just not the ones Ed thinks. The biggest incentive in a, in a market economy is the market size. And the more money most people have, the bigger the opportunity and the bigger the incentives are to invest and innovate. Ed and his trickle-down ilk believe that capital is all that matters, but we are awash in capital. American companies are currently sitting on $2 trillion worth of cash. At the same time, the cost to innovate has fallen exponentially. It took a million dollars to start Amazon.com. In our economy, growth is dependent on how many innovators and consumers we include in the economy. The economy isn't the bank accounts of the rich. It is the dynamic feedback loop between sellers and buyers. This means that the more people we include in our economy as robust innovators and affluent consumers, the faster it grows and the bigger it gets. That's why rising inequality is terrible for the economy and for the American dream of upward mobility. Thank you. Thank you, Nick Hanauer. And that is our motion. Income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. And here, as our final debater against the motion in this opening round to argue against it, Ed Conard. He is author of the book, Unintended Consequences, Why Everything You've Been Told About the Economy is Wrong. And he's a former partner at Bain Capital. Ladies and gentlemen, Ed Conard. I almost feel like I don't have to speak. Nick said it all for me. (laughs) But Nick pushes you off what this debate is really about. It's whether income inequality impairs mobility. And if it did, there'd be telltale signs that Nick wants to overlook. The first is that we've seen a lot of growing inequality, but all the evidence says mobility has not declined. We've transferred more to the poor. That should increase mobility. It hasn't. 
We've spent more on education. That should significantly increase our test scores. It hasn't. So we may not have found a way to increase mobility, but we have found a way to increase the living standards of the poor, and that's by growing our economy. So this debate really isn't about whether income inequality impairs mobility. This debate is really about whether the success of America's top earners hurts the middle and working class. Now, our opponents see the pie, the economy as a pie to be divided. They believe that Steve Jobs' success reduces the income of everybody else. The more he gets, the less everybody else gets. We see his success as growing the economy and the demand for labor. Now, it's true. Productivity is growing faster than median wages. Our opponents see this as evidence that lesser-skilled employees no longer share in the success of our economy. They overlook the fact that growth can manifest itself in two ways. Where the supply of labor is restricted, like it was in the 1950s and 60s, it'll drive up wages. But where the supply of labor is unrestricted, like it is today, it'll drive up employment. The baby boom, the increased participation of women in the workforce, immigration, and growing trade deficits have created an enormous increase in supply in labor. And as a result, employment grew instead of wages. U.S. employment has grown 50% since 1980, twice as fast as Germany and France, three times faster than Japan. And America has achieved this employment growth at median incomes that are 20 to 30% higher than Germany, France, and Japan. No other economy has done more to help the middle class and working poor than the U.S. economy. In the real world, Germany, France, and Japan all distributed income more equally, and none of them produced faster employment growth in America, nor, despite more restricted supplies of labor, did they grow their median incomes faster than the United States since the early 1990s. In the academic world, there have been no less than six highly regarded cross-country studies on the effect of income inequality on growth by economists at Harvard, MIT, the OECD, the World Bank, the IMF. All of them have reached the same conclusion. Inequality accelerates growth in high-wage economies. The IMF's most recent study, whose headlines insisted that redistribution does not slow growth, admitted redistribution above the 75th percentile is indeed harmful to growth, as the Oaken big trade-off suggests. Guess which country is at the 75th percentile? The United States. So please, don't succumb to our opponents' divisive politics. Even if you support higher taxes, the success of America's top earners is an asset, not a liability. Vote against the motion that success impairs upward mobility. Thank you, Ed Conard. And that is our motion, Income Inequality Impairs the American Dream of Upward Mobility. And that concludes round one. Now we move on to round two in our debate. Round two is where the debaters address one another directly and they take questions from me and from you in the audience. A reminder of where we are, we have two teams of two arguing for and against this motion, Income Inequality Impairs the American Dream of Upward Mobility. We have heard the team arguing for the motion, Elise Gould and Nick Hanauer, um, say, you know, some inequality is built into the system and some inequality is even a spur to innovation, but a point comes where it becomes comes too much and it can actually kill the American dream. They say basically using the image of a ladder that if the rungs are spread farther apart than they ever have been before and the top is higher than it's ever been before, that intuitively it becomes much more difficult to climb. That the distance from the bottom to the top has become staggering. The team arguing against the motion, Scott Winship and Ed Conard, also acknowledge that there is a lot of income inequality, but they say that is not the cause of of a loss in upward mobility in the United States. They cite a number of studies that have looked at this and have crunched the numbers comparing income inequality with mobility, and they find that there is no meaningful relationship. Then that the downward pressure on wages in the United States, which they acknowledge is real, has other causes. So I found it interesting that um, Scott Winship, who was arguing against the motion, said that the motion as phrased, income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility, sounds intuitively correct, but is factually wrong. And I want to go to Elise Gould, who's arguing for the motion. Your opponent's point is that the studies show us something that's not intuitively correct. And you're the economist, and you're the one who knows the studies, and it's difficult to get into dueling studies. But does he have a point that the majority, or the consensus, as he put it, of the studies show that the numbers just aren't there? Uh, On the one hand, he's absolutely right. 
that um, the research is not conclusive that mobility has declined. But I, I think that the argument that we've seen growing income inequality happen over the last generation, over the last 30 years, income inequality has gotten worse. When we want to really measure this, we're kind of at a loss because we have to wait. We have to see what happens as those kids growing up in the most unequal times, what is going to happen with their outcomes, which is why I look at education because that's what we can see today. We can look at those opportunities that lead to a realization of the American dream, and those opportunities are simply not there. Scott Winship. Well, you, you hear this a lot, I think, as a, as a, as a sort of retreating move uh, when, when folks acknowledge that mobility has not fallen. Uh, you do hear this argument uh, about, well, you know, we'll see it in today's generation. But I will say that the study uh, that was done by Emmanuel Saez uh, with Raj Chetty, who's a Harvard economist that won the award for the smartest uh, economist under 40 with seven years to spare, uh, They look at young adults. They look at people who are in their late 20s. They measured their parental incomes in the mid-1990s. At that point, they had experienced uh, rising income concentration. The share of income received by the top 1% had been rising at that point for 15 years, uh, and it didn't show up uh, in their results. And Nick Hauer, I mean, I, I don't want to dwell forever on these studies, but they are the evidence we have, and your partner has conceded that, the, that there at least is not a consensus on this. What do we do with studies that are done by serious economists who are respected, peer-reviewed, who are telling us that they can't find evidence that your side of the motion is actually correct? Uh, just because the industrialized nations have not been radically unequal enough to allow economists to do timescale studies to prove that it will be harmful doesn't mean it's not. And in fact, if you look around the world, there are 205 countries running simultaneous experiments on how to create prosperous societies. And in every single case where you find radical inequality, you find low social economic mobility around the world, right? This is not, this is not a far-out concept, uh, you know, the truth is that the, the United States has only been a highly unequal society for 10 to 20 years. 30 years ago, it was not that bad. And so the fact that you don't, you, we haven't had the time to measure it doesn't tell you anything. Uh, your common sense, on the other hand, uh, should, should inform you highly. Ed Conard. Yeah, uh, Nick is doing something that a lot of mobility scholars on the left try to do. They want to mix the results from high-wage economies with low-wage economies. Everybody serious in this field separates those apart. You have to look at them separately. And when you look at high-wage economies, you simply don't find what Nick's saying. The second thing I'd ask as well, when we think about going into the future, we do know this about the future. If we look backwards at the past, things have gotten more prosperous over time. The amount of money that we transfer in this economy has grown from about 11% to about 14% today. Use the term, explain the term transfer. It's an money that we take from one group of people in the economy and give to the other. Through, now, through what Through devices? taxation and government intervention. Okay. A lot of that goes to the elderly. But the CBOs look very carefully at the income that goes to the uh, non-elderly families in the bottom 20%. 2006, when they did the study, it was $15,000. It doesn't include state transfers, which brings it up to closer to 20. It's grown with inflation since then. Today, it is very close to about $25,000. We are doing a lot to try to help people at the bottom of the scale and to increase their mobility. And as we go forward into the future, we're going to be doing even more and more. And what is driving that? The success of our economy is making that available. Ali School, let's have you respond. I mean, I think what we've seen, if we look, as you said, we should look at other advanced economies. And, I, and as I said in my opening remarks, we have lower mobility than Denmark, Norway, Finland, Sweden, Japan, Spain, France, a number of countries that are advanced economies. And, and I want to respond to one other thing that Ed said about transfers and resources. One thing you said in your opening comments, you mentioned helping the working poor. The idea of, that we have working poor in this country is, I just, 
I think it just leaves such a bad taste in my mouth that we have people that are hardworking, working full-time, maybe full year, and they can't lift their families out of poverty. We absolutely need to think about let me stop. Let me stop you yeah. there and, and, just, and go to Ed, because the question was directed at you. And, and, and the last thing that Elise said goes to the point of our motion, that they can't lift themselves out of poverty. What's your response to that? Well, I think there are many people who have a difficult time lifting themselves out of poverty. If you're sick... If you have a mental illness, drug addiction, convicted of a crime and you're an ex-convict, it can be difficult for you to lift yourself out of poverty. But there are many, many, many people who can lift themselves out of poverty. Tens of millions of Hispanic immigrants have come across the border. They were making 2 $3 an hour. They're making 7 to $15 today, many of them, many more than that. And they have lifted okay. themselves out of poverty. But I would like to no, say... No, actually, thing. I want to go back to... I just wanted to have you as... And, Elise, I just want to come back to you with that question. All right, conceding that some people can't lift themselves out of poverty, what does that have to do with people being very rich at the top? Um, if we know that a larger share of the pie is going to the top, that means that there's less there for everybody else. When there's less there for everybody else, there's fewer resources going, particularly to the bottom. There's fewer resources, and parents cannot afford to make those investments. And all of those things provide a situation where children just do not have the same opportunities to okay. succeed. Okay, Scott Winship, in your opening statement, I think I heard you also agree with your opponents while you're arguing against this motion. You agreed with them that there is a threat to opportunity. Did I hear you correctly in, in that? You heard me correctly that uh, I do agree that uh, that we have uh, upward mobility uh, that is too limited in the United States. So the figures that I like to cite, if you're born in the bottom fifth, raised in the bottom fifth, uh, you only have about a 30 to 40 percent chance of making it either to the middle class or better than that. Uh, that's far too low in my book. I'm as concerned as anybody about uh, how do we increase upward mobility rates. But I just think if you're talking about bang for your buck, uh, focusing on, on bringing the incomes at the top down uh, is just not going to buy you much. Okay, so you're saying the problems are real, but the cause is not the fact that people like Nick Hanauer are making a lot of money. Nick Hanauer, you think it is? Yeah, I, no, no. I, I mean, I mean <laughs> look, I, I, you know, I mean, you misunderstand our point. I, I do not for a moment believe that the problem with the economy is that we have too much success and we should hinder it in some way. Uh, we're, we're in violent agreement about that, mm-hmm. that, 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 that our economy benefits massively from very clever and very hardworking people taking risks and innovating. That's not the question. The question is, should only a few percent of us be able to do that? And the answer to that is categorically no. I mean, here's the way to connect these two things. Why are the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer? Well, here's a reason. Because over the last 40 years, the percent of profits that American corporations generate as a percentage of GDP has gone from 6 to 12%. At the same time, the percent of GDP devoted to labor has gone from 52 to 42. So that difference is about a trillion dollars. Here's the thing you have to understand. That trillion dollars isn't profit because it needs to be or should be. It's profit because powerful people like me and Ed prefer it to be. That trillion dollars could very easily be spent on wages or, or on discounts for consumers. This isn't a consequence of some magical law of economics. This is a consequence of differentials in power. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. Okay, I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator, and we have four debaters, two against two, debating this motion. Income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. Ed Conard. Take, for example, test prep that we've talked about and how much parents are preparing. There are two kinds of colleges. There's prestigious colleges which have a limited number of slots, and then there's other colleges which basically have an unlimited number of slots. What's happened is that in the prestigious, <laughs> in the, in the prestigious colleges, we have allocated more and more slots to lower-income students and to minority students. And as a result, what you find is that rich white students are working harder and harder for a limited number of slots 
in the most prestigious schools. At the same time, at the, low, at the less prestigious schools, anybody who's capable of going, who takes the test and is able to get through the school, can go to those schools. There is no shortage of slots. We've increased the number of slots. We've increased the number of students in participating in that. So it would be unfair, for example, to say, geez, there's more and more uh, rich students going to those schools than there are poor, schools today, poor students today. Any student who can get there can get there. And we have spent more and more money trying to help people get as far as they can in life. And we've tried to help those people at the bottom who are not able to pull themselves out of poverty. It's not as though we're letting those people starve to death. We are giving them a substantial amount of money to try to help them maintain some standard of living at that level. Um, I'm not so sure about there being infinite slots in all the other schools, but that's another question. On what planet is that happening? Um, and test prep is really far more available to the higher income, so it, that's not really where I want to go either. I think the direction I want to go is inequality at the starting gate, and from that I mean inequality at the beginning of kindergarten. These differences are found very early on. The differences in resources available to higher-income children is far greater than available to lower-income children. As I said before, um, higher rates of unemployment, instability, lower income, all of those things absolutely come at a cost to kids. And you see vast disparities, even the first day of kindergarten. All right. I want to go to some questions and answers now from the audience. And uh, if you can stand up, too. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike. Um, So I was expecting to hear uh, the against side arguing uh, a lacking relationship between the two, between inequality and upward mobility. Um, And instead, I kind of heard you guys suggesting that inequality can drive upward mobility. So I'm wondering uh, if you would advocate active and systemic mechanisms to do just that, to increase inequality as a tough love mechanism to helping (laughs) the poor. Go ahead, go. That's about the best question we've had in about a year. <laughs> Ed Conard. I think that, that customers decide how much people get paid, how much they're willing to pay for products and for employees and such. And so anything that gets in the way of that slows growth. It doesn't increase growth. And so, no, I would be against any policy that tried to artificially do what customers don't want. Elise Gould. I don't think customers decide. Um, I think we're, you know, we're talking about how we're splitting how much of the profits come in, and we've seen record high profits. I don't think customers decided that CEO to the average worker pay should go from 30 to 1 30 years ago to almost 300 to 1 today. Another question? Hi. What about the uh, aspirational aspect uh, of the... um of the spread, the inequality spread. Um, in Freakonomics, uh, Stephen Dubner talked about uh, the drug dealers and, and how many people were in that trade because there was a chance that they might be able to get to the very top. And, and if the top is getting higher, um, is that becoming more aspirational and potentially in, uh, improving mobility? Does the top rung really give you something to shoot for? Okay, that's a really interesting question. Let's take it to Ed. Conard, would you like to take that or your partner? Yes, I, I think that... Uh, Innovation is like any game of chance. The higher the payoff, the more risk people will take. And so what we have seen in our economy is that as we've raised the bar for success, our most capable people at the highest end or our highest earning people have worked harder and harder, more and more hours than the rest of the world. And they have taken more and more entrepreneurial risk and produced way more innovation than the rest of the world has. And ultimately, that's translated into a much higher growth rate. And so we do keep raising the bar. And it's not really the bar for money. That's not what motivates people. It's the status that goes along with it. And as the bar gets raised, you have to achieve more and more to get to the same level of status. And that drives our most talented people to work harder and harder and take more risks. And that is what everybody else needs from the most talented people. We need those people working hard. Nick Hanauer. So quick audience poll with your hands, not the buttons. Who thinks they work harder than their parents? You need to tell the radio audience what you're seeing. <laughs> Two-thirds of the room. Do you, th- do you think you work harder than your parents because your tax rates are lower than theirs? I don't think so. I don't think so. So hard work is, is an extremely important thing, but it is 
completely uncorrelated to the tax rates we pay. That's the first point. And the second thing is, and this is the, this is the most difficult thing to talk about when we talk about upward mobility and the American dream and inequality, and that is this, that humans are status-seeking creatures. We are not optimizing for money. We are op- optimizing for uh, social position. And when you go from a world where to fly first class is to be affluent, wealthy, to a world where you have to have a $25 million Falcon 2000 to, to, to be affluent, to live large, you have stretched the society apart in a way that means that 99.999% of the people in the society cannot live the good life. And, 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 I would and argue, Nick, you're, you don't think John, that people will aspire to that? You think they'll be turned off by it? I, th- I don't think that they will that aspire one iota more in the, in the second scenario than the first. It's just that in the second scenario, 99.999% of you fail. And I, and I would argue that having a society that is an arms race, that is structured to be an arms race, that no one except me and maybe a couple of other people in the audience can possibly win is a, is a winning solution to building a good society. I would also say this. Ask the 50 million adult immigrants and their children whether or not they benefited from this arms race or they were hurt by this arms race. He talks like a rich man. Okay? A poor guy benefits from the fact that we are working our tails off and taking the entrepreneurial risks that grow the economy and increase prosperity. Rich guys walk around and say, wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't have an arms race and I didn't have to have my whatever it was, Falcon something, in order to, uh, to be successful? We need you to be working your tail off. It's the poor people that need you to be working your tail off. The poor people are working their tails yeah. off. I didn't, yes. say, they, I I didn't the say they weren't. But in Europe and Japan, they have not been able to produce the innovation and the growth and the employment that the U.S. economy has. It is two to three times faster. It is an extraordinary difference. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. On to round three. Closing statements from each debater in turn. Here to summarize her position in support of the motion, income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility, Elise Gould, Senior Economist and Director of Health Policy Research at the Economic Policy Institute. Thank you. One of the most profound pieces of research that I've encountered as my tenure as a professional economist came from an interdisciplinary group of researchers. They examined the brains of hundreds of young children from various economic backgrounds beginning at birth and following them every few months until four years of age. And what they found is that children in poor families lagged behind the development of the frontal regions of the brain, deficits that help explain behavioral, learning, and attention problems more common among disadvantaged children. What's striking is that the brains of the infants looked really similar. You didn't see those differences at birth. And that really implicates the environment in which they live. It boils down to an elevated fight-or-flight response from living in a more stressful home environment, which makes them less able to learn and succeed in school. It's no surprise that families' economic situation and particularly low levels of economic stability can wreak havoc on children's well-being and their success later in life. While the mobility research has a few years to catch up, as the children born in the most unequal times grow up, the pathways are clear. The truth is that income, increasing incomes for those families at the bottom of the income distribution have extraordinary consequences for children's health, educational attainment, and future earnings. It's not only well-founded, it's common sense. If the economy had delivered jobs and growing wages to all those wanting to work and work hard, children across the income distribution would have a much better chance of succeeding and attaining the American dream. Luckily, there are steps we can take to reduce this trend, but let's not deny the facts. Vote for increased opportunity. Vote for the proposition. Thank you, Elise Gould. And our proposition is income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Scott Winship, the Walter B. Riston Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, Well, thanks, John. Uh, As you heard John say uh, at the beginning of the debate, um, 
Nick recently tried to uh, convince his fellow zillionaires uh, that inequality has risen so much that they should fear for their safety. Uh, so I'll, I'll just quote, you show me an, a highly unequal society, and I'll show you a police state or an uprising. There are no counterexamples, none. It's not if, it's when. But I can think of one example. It comes from Emmanuel Saez, we've cited before. Uh, Saez tells us that the top 1% in Manhattan, top 1% of parents, receive 54% of the income of all parents on this island, more than double the national figure. That's also much higher than in King County, Washington, home to Seattle and to Nick Hanauer. In King County, the top receives 25% of parental income. But the Saez data indicate that in Manhattan, low-income children, those poorer than 75% uh, of kids, typically as adults end up poorer than 59% of their peers as late 20-somethings. That's far too high. Uh, But how high do poor children rise in King County? They typically end up poorer than 73% of their peers. The issue tonight isn't whether poverty uh, is a problem or whether uh, lack of upward mobility is a problem. The question tonight is whether rising income inequality caused those problems. Uh, And as I've argued tonight, uh, the evidence is just not there as much as we might care about Uh, the poor, and those who are stuck at the bottom. So I urge you tonight to oppose the motion on the table. Income inequality has not impaired the American dream of upward mobility. Thank you, Scott Winship. And that's the motion. Income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. And here to summarize his position in support of this motion, Nick Hanauer. He is co-founder and partner at the venture capital firm Second Avenue Partners. For all of human history, wherever you have found concentrated wealth, you find its defenders and its apologists, the deniers, the people who put lead in paint denied it was harmful, the people who made cigarettes denied they gave us cancer. The packaged food industry denies that sugary soft drinks have anything to do with our epidemic of childhood obesity and diabetes. And how could we not have inequality deniers like clockwork They will tell you it's not happening, or if it is, it's really, really good for the economy and for the middle class and mobility. Inequality tonight is being sold like high fructose corn syrup. (laughs) Yummy. Have some more. Really? Really? So we should ignore the facts and the drowning feeling the majority of middle-income Americans are experiencing today as they watch the American dream recede. Our answer to them should be, hey, you just need to look at the data differently. We should believe that the young men in Ferguson, Missouri, elected not to become software engineers or partners at Bain because the theoretical incentives to take risk were not high enough. Elise and I do not believe that, and we hope you don't either. You don't need a PhD in economics to see that extreme and rising inequality isn't just impairing the American dream of upward mobility. Inequality is drowning it. Thank you. Nick Hauer, your time is up. Thank you. Our motion, income inequality, impairs the American dream of upward mobility. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Ed Conard, a uh, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and former partner at Bain Capital. Germany is the second most prosperous major economy in the world. In Germany, the 99% earns 47% of GDP. In the United States, the 99% earns 47% of GDP. And that's 47% of a faster-growing economy with median incomes that are 20% higher. With America's 1% earning a larger share of GDP than their counterparts in Germany, how can it be the case that the 99% in both countries earn the same share of GDP? Relative to Germany, the additional share earned by America's 1% comes entirely from the investor's share of GDP, not the share earned by the 99%. So for those of you who continue to believe that the economy is a pie, please recognize that the larger share of America's 1% comes entirely from investors and not the 99%. Ultimately, this debate boils down to whether the outside success of America's talent is an asset or a liability for the rest of the country. By every measure, employment growth, median incomes, return to education, and opportunities for immigration, the U.S. provides more upward mobility than any other economy. 
Even ultra-liberal Emmanuel Saez agrees. Mobility has not declined. And even if you believe that we ought to tax the rich more, it does not change the fact that the success of America's top earners do not impair the American dream of upward mobility. They improve it. Please vote against the motion. Thank you, Ed Conard. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now it is time to learn which side has argued the best. Before we do that, um, I want to say uh, it was a it was a, a, a relatively complex topic. Uh, the the motion itself has several moving parts, and I think our debaters dealt with that uh, really well and intelligently, and in a, a spirit of respect for one another. So I want to congratulate them for the way they did this. So it's all in now. I have the final results and recall that um, the way we determine victory here is the team whose numbers have changed the most between your two votes in our live audience here in New York in percentage point terms. So let's see what the results are. The motion was this. Income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. Before the debate, 60% agreed with this motion. 14% were against. 26% were undecided. So those are the first results. Again, it's the difference between the first and second vote. Let's look at the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. Their second vote was 53%. They went from 60% down 7 percentage points to 53%. Let's look at the team against the motion. Their first vote was 14%. Their second vote, 37%. They went up 23 percentage points. That's enough for victory by far. The team arguing against the motion, income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility, is our winner. Our congratulations to them. Thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S., was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. To hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org forward slash Intelligence Squared. Crucial support for the Intelligence Squared U.S. debates comes from its generous members and donors, with a special thank you to the Rosencrantz Foundation, Christopher W. Johnson, Profit Capital Asset Management, the George E. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Paul E. Singer, David A. Coulter, and Mortimer Sackler. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Shall we play a game? Sorry for the 80s flashback there, but for word games, puzzles, and trivia of all sorts right now, check out Ask Me Another. Can you do math at the movies? Do you know what it means to jump the shark? Can you name commercial jingles sung in Italian? Find out by listening to Ask Me Another on iTunes under podcasts.